But on the other hand, the Russians were the surprise of my life. We had two Soviet delegates to dinner. You may not believe it, but I assure you they were properly dressed. Maybe the Russians are going places. Oh, well, I wouldn't come to hasty conclusions. They still dunk. This is How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It is March 1916, and Dara Jaffe is joining us today to discuss Shoe Palace Pincus. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Hello, welcome everyone. I'm here with Dara Jaffe. She is the Associate Curator at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. If you want to tell us about yourself, Dara. Sure. Hi, Devin. Thank you so much for having me. I am a lifelong movie lover, and my entire life goal was just to figure out how to keep watching movies as my life's work, and so far, so good. Um, I have my master's in film studies from Wesleyan University, moved out to LA knowing I wanted to work for the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, and I have been working there since 2013, uh, and we just opened last year, so very exciting time, and I adore Lubitsch, so uh, I'm very thankful for this opportunity to just talk about him with you. I'd love to hear about your uh, experiences with Lubitsch. How did you get into him, and uh, what what moved you to want to say yes to recording a podcast, and would we talk about one of his least uh, known movies? Well, I'm always up for a challenge. I feel like I, I came to, to him in a very boring way, because it's literally in film school. And I'll also say that you know, when I talk about how much I love Lubitsch, I'm very aware that my favorite Lubitsch movies are not deep cuts. They are probably the opposite of that. They're, they're I don't want to <laughs> say shallow cuts because nothing is shallow, but, it, you know, they're going to be his his best known films like To Be or Not To Be, Trouble in Paradise. I love Design for Living, uh, but I feel like that's like the holy mm-hmm. trinity. I feel like a lot of people would name those three first. It's interesting how uh, how many different answers I get to that because I think there's there's certain eras of Lubitsch that are very popular with I think certain eras of Lubitsch fans. If I could say twenty or thirty years ago, even uh, it was the pre-code comedies like Trouble in Paradise, Designed for Living, etc. Mm-hmm. That I think I heard about most. And then for the past ten years, twenty years ish, it's his later I would almost call the political films mm. of his, like Ninochka, To Be or Not to Be, Shop Around the Corner, which I think you could call political. That uh, I hear talked about. So I think the scope, and I think often this is due to availability, um, the scope of what people talk about is really widened. This is such a sentimental answer, but I was incredibly close with my grandmother and she would always keep her favorite movies on VHS in her bedroom, you know, all out in the room with the TV. There were the whole selection, but in her room, she kept just those few favorite VHSs. I have in my bedroom, literally over my bed where I sleep, her VHS copy of Shop Around the Corner. And so, I I Mm. mean, I don't know how sentimental you get on this podcast, but I guess that was actually my true, you know, kind of approach to Lubitsch was through my grandmother. Oh, that's wonderful. All the sentiment is welcome. <laughs> uh, Lubitsch is one of the few directors who successfully makes me feel makes me feel things. Interesting, because I feel like he's famous for wanting his viewers to also think a lot. You know, some some directors want their viewers to mm-hmm. only feel like turn off their brain altogether. He he wants your brain working, of course, because we're getting ahead of ourselves, but you know, he, he wants you filling mm-hmm. in all the, the punchlines uh, for his jokes for him. So I find that very interesting. And also I, I love that you, you said he's, he makes you feel things. I would, I would dig into that if this were a different podcast. <laughs> He's very unique for me because, I mean, I probably, I'm a real, I mean, I, I, my trade is as a cinematographer mm. and colorist. And so I'm, uh, you know, my favorite directors tend to be like the Altmans of the world who have these incredibly unique formal footprints. And uh, Lubitsch is, is unique to me, at least, which is part of why I moved to, you know, record 53 episodes about him or however many this darn thing is going to be. Because um, he doesn't really touch me on like the, oh, that's an, that's a, such a expressive mm. zoom. It's on a human level. It's on, you know, when Felix Brassart in To Be or Not To Be does the uh, Shylock monologue. I, I, I break mm. down every single mm-hmm. time. Oh, we should definitely, we should definitely come back to that character and monologue later mm. in this discussion. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And I, whenever I watch a Lubitsch movie, I feel like I'm floating on air. It feels like champagne. It feels bubbly. It is, it mm-hmm. is a visceral experience, even as it's a thinking, you know, intellectual experience. And just 
between, you know, the the fluid camera and the alighting of time and the of course the the humor that carries you through the whole way. I I feel like I'm I'm just walking on air. I love that his system of morality, and this applies to the film we're going to talk about today, Shoe Palace Pincus, the way that he expresses success and morality has less to do with virtue or and it has nothing to do with class. It has to do with it has to do with sophistication. I would say most of his most heroic characters are heroic because they're smooth operators, mm-hmm. right? They're willing to, they're self-made bourgeois almost. Like you have um, Monescu in Through Trouble in Paradise, who is not a, a true... A baron, uh, a doctor. <laughs> yes, he, he's one of those things and he's mm-hmm. none of those things. But to Lubitsch, he is fully those things because he is so good at embodying that. What he's born as doesn't matter. And to me, that that's the most champagne part mm. of it. It's this a uh, very humanistic expression of almost class. He wants you to have this very sophisticated feeling experience. In his American films, he wants you in Europe, right? Like he wants you in Paris, Italy, uh, even Hungary, Poland. But the characters, even as they're pretending to be high-class characters, they're always going to be these, well, I won't say always, but exactly as you say. And can can I can I say something that I noticed that I've never noticed before because of Shoe Palace Pincus, his motif of using the device of someone dunking into their coffee or tea when they ah. shouldn't be dunking. It it took this movie when, of course, he's with the woman who will soon be his benefactress and he, he dunks his treat into his tea and she says, no, no, we don't dunk. And you understand he's lower class. This is impolite. And you see this dunking joke again in Trouble in Paradise when mm. Miriam Hopkins is posing as secretary uh, to Kay Francis. And when Miriam isn't looking, Kay Francis dunks her treat into her coffee. And it's so important uh, that you like that character in order for that love triangle to balance out. And, you know, she's this millionaire. She could easily be written off as an unlikable character. And moments like that, you understand, no, she's she's one of us. Mm. She, she dunks into her coffee. And then in Shop Around the Corner... Yeah, crawl like she is dunking, which is one of my yes. favorite lines in yes. any film. Why shouldn't she yeah. dunk? It's it's this moment yeah. of bonding for them and for us. And I did not put this together that this is a Lubitsch thing mm-hmm. until this movie, until this 1916 movie where he does it. Oh, it's everywhere. I actually, this is actually a momentous occasion because I plan on uh, tracking every single time in any Lubitsch film surviving that dunking is involved because it is, um, it, it's, it's me. My favorite was running jokes. It even, I mean, I've counted at least 10 times it pops up. It's so omnipresent. Just it's this class signifier. And even this, like, I love it in Angel when uh, uh, William Everett mm. Horton, kind of, a, he's playing a diplomat and he reports and he says, um, oh, this one country's at the League of Nations, of course, um, a delegation still dunks. So therefore they can't be that sophisticated. <laughs> um, it's, yeah. it, I was, uh, I actually didn't notice it until this viewing of Chief Palace Pincus that this is the first surviving case of the Lubitsch dunk. <laughs> the Lubitsch dunk. I love that. I also, this is such a side note, but I love how he uses Edward Everett Horton, especially in contrast to someone like Frank Capra, who always casts him as butlers, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. And with Lubitsch, he's always these like woefully <laughs> um, ill-disposed to being as high class and hoity-torty as he is. Like uh-huh. he's still kind of a sad, dumpy character, even though he is at, you know, the the class of society that these other you know, more beloved characters (laughs) pretend to be. I I find even that interesting, his use of of that actor. I think he's he's second to Felix Broussard for me in terms of my favorite Lubitsch side characters um, at all times. Have Mm. you seen The Merry Widow, by the way? Yeah, you know, a long time ago. So I feel like I'm not a yeah, but please tell me whatever you're about to tell me. Oh, just his character in that Ambassador Popoff is <laughs> maybe I think one of the funniest characters in film history. He's the ultimate William Horton character. He's just uh, he has his like almost like diplomatic death sentence read to him. Uh, you think his response is going to be uh, "Where's the cyanide capsule?" But no, it's uh, "Hide the cyanide so I don't use it." He even has that. <laughs> he's too level-headed and inert to even want like a dignified diplomat's death. <laughs> which I just love. Thank you for giving me a reason to just be in this world for a while. This is my favorite cinematic world to be in. Just side note. 
I find, I mean, one thing about Lubitsch I find very interesting is that, sorry, even the, the photo of him on the cover of the Scott Eamon book, uh, I only ever recognize him by the personality and his smile. He always looks different in every single photo I've seen him in. I mean, there's shots in um, Shoe Palace Pincus where I, I would not recognize him, uh, which I find kind of interesting. I mean, maybe just because he's, he's the oldest 16-year-old in history. But you know what? I feel like that is important. Uh, when I first saw that he was... <laughs> With almost no effort to look young other None. than the short pants, he is playing this young boy, ma young man, amidst all these actual schoolboys. But I feel like that is what my mentor at Wesleyan would have called a margin of safety, mm. which I would love, I would love to tell you. Okay, so Janine Basinger, who is my mentor at Wesleyan, she has this concept that she calls margin of safety. It is the safety net that you're given as a viewer when you're watching a movie where they're going to want you to laugh at something that you would not laugh at in real life, which is most of Lubitsch's comedy. It's most of comedy. I, I think if it's fun comedy, you know, it is the distancing factor let, that lets you know this is a movie. And my favorite thing in the whole world is when she introduced this concept to us on the first day of a class that she teaches all about comedy. She asked the whole class, how funny is Hitler? Nobody wants to say anything. Super long pause. And then she, she's like, come on, guys, this is not a trick question. How funny is Hitler? And still no one wants to say anything. And finally, she's like, well, you know, we should be morally concerned about you because Hitler isn't funny. You know, this is an easy answer. Hitler is hmm. not funny. OK, now I'm going to show you two movies where Hitler is funny. <laughs> And of course, one of them was to be or not to be. And obviously, as you know, the movie starts out with who you think is Hitler just walking around Poland. But right away, you're given these clues in the formal presentation of the movie that let you know this is a movie. You are safe. You can laugh. This is not Hitler. We have narration that automatically puts you in this place as viewer. You are aware I'm receiving information. Therefore, I'm aware of myself as viewer. The narration is funny. Then you have this moment where you're tricked by Lubitsch because you think you're getting this real explanation for why Hitler is in Poland at that time. And of mm. course, you find out it's actors rehearsing for a play. And when your director shows their hand by tricking you and making you realize that you assumed the movie was something different than it was, that is, I think, the best way to remind you that you are, in fact, a viewer, you're in the hands of a storyteller. And so those those little formal elements, that's what she would call margins of safety. And that was the first thing that struck mm. me when I saw that Lubitsch was playing a young schoolboy running around in short pants, looking clearly a grown man among all these other actors who are age appropriate. That was my first thought was this is a margin of safety. I understand this is a movie. I understand this is silly. And anything that happens after this, I know I'm not in danger. I know I'm meant to, you know, this is light. This is a fun time. I, I had the same thought after he tells his parents that he's been expelled from school. And they're, of course, freaking out. And he has this moment where he, I, I, he looks at the camera and he's laughing and laughing. And he says, they'll calm down or something. And I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I, think, he I think he actually breaks the fourth wall to literally tell us, don't worry. This is, I think it's hilarious that I've been expelled. Based on the previous film that we covered, um, which was uh, Where's My Treasure, that film is rife with that. He, as soon as he kind of, Lubitsch in that film, the character also named Ernst wow. Lubitsch, which is an interesting uh, side to this, uh, halfway through the film dons the disguise for, for most of the film. And he immediately becomes this like Marx Brothers figure, like looking at the camera, you and the audience are in on the joke, but the other characters aren't. So let's, let's conspire mm. and make this fun. Uh, I didn't consider considered it as a sort of a, a distancing uh, tool for the purposes of, of, of safety. That, that's really interesting. I apply it to almost everything. It's it. I, I think about it almost every single movie I watch. Like, what are the margins of safety here? And of course, people can fool mm -hmm. you and make you think you're safer than you are. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, well, that's to be or not to be in a nutshell, where they, they pull the rug and suddenly you're, uh, you're a wreck. True, true. Um, that movie mm -hmm. really does play with it. And of course... In the end, when it was released, nothing could overcome the fact that Carol Lombard had been killed. Yeah. And, and so there was there was no margins of safety there. Nothing that he had done in, inside of the film could have overcome the lack of margins of safety regarding Carol Lombard. But now for us, looking back, I think we can experience it in a different way. 
Yeah, and without the uh, active danger of Very much uh, so. you know forties Nazi Germany, which would, you, know. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. yeah. So as far as uh, I should probably uh, formally introduce this film, because Shoe Palace Pincus, it's the second film we're covering, released in May of 1916. It's about halfway through the war, you know, and and already the, the war is you know heavily affecting Ernst Lubitsch. Um, his, his mother, Anna, died in December 1914. Um, this is kind of at the height of Lubitsch's moonlighting uh, with uh, Reinhardt uh, and the movies while still, I believe, on and off working for his father, Simon Lubitsch, um, at his textiles company, which is, of course, greatly informed this movie. I am going to, for the early films, I am going to just blitz through a tiny little summary of the film. This time I'm going to try and do it in the um, announcer from MASH voice. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll post-process it to sound like I'm over a loudspeaker. Um, This film is uh, fascinating in so many ways. A couple of little notes I have about it. One is that um, this is his earliest surviving collaboration with his writer, Hans Crowley, who worked with Lubitsch through the end of the silent era until he uh, scandalously ran off with Lubitsch's wife in 1930. Oh, snap. Yeah, um, Lubitsch's love life is a cruel irony uh, in, in context of his films. Um, this is also the first time I personally noticed Ossie Oswalda in one of these movies. Uh, she's going to go on to be uh, the lead in numerous of his other films. Uh, she's the lead in I Don't Want to Be a Man and The Doll. She's a major character in Oyster Princess, uh, one of his key on-screen collaborators from the era. And it's also his first huge success. This film was a huge box office smash by 1916 Berlin standards. <laughs> I probably want to start with this because there's so much to dig into. I mean, there's the fact that this is a quintessential example of the Lubitsch on-screen character in that he is playing his uh, kind of the type that he had played in films such as The Firm Marys and The Pride of the Firm in 1914 and would later do in Meyer from Berlin. I couldn't help but, of course, just be looking for the Lubitsch touch everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, like, is it because obviously I, I know what his artistry is going to look like when it's, you know, been developed 10, 15, 20 years on down the road. But I, I couldn't help but look for it. And there are moments where I kept thinking to myself, if this were later, I think this would have been a Lubitsch touch moment. Like I was thinking about that. There's this joke where he's cheating on an exam um, and he, he has the notes, you know, kind of attached to the back of the student in front of him. And then, of course, the student stands up and reveals to the teacher. I was like, I don't know how because I. I'm not the master of the Lubitsch touch. I just know that if Lubitsch were to do this sometime later, there would have been like an interesting, like, you know, moment where the viewer is supplying the, you know, the punchline of the joke or what have you. Or the moment where, where he swaps the, uh, swaps the shoe sizes. It, it took me, I'm not going to lie. Like I had to stop and, and be like, wait, what happened there? Um, and then I realized, oh, the, <laughs> you know, the woman for her whole, for her own vanity. She doesn't want to believe that her feet are as big as they are. So she's refusing to buy the shoes that are actually in her correct size. So Lubitsch's character takes the correct size, but changes um, the label so that it says they're a smaller size. I had to rewatch it again to, mm -hmm. to realize what he was doing, which in itself, I mean, Lubitsch assumes that his viewer is smart. I mean, that that's the whole point of the Lubitsch touch is he knows if he leads you to the joke, you'll complete it and then you'll feel smart and you'll have you'll feel like you've had this amazing cinematic experience along with him but I, there were also moments where i was like is his choice to use an intertitle or not use an inner title one of the moments i liked was when he's he's talking to the the crowd of women um in the shoe store where he works and he says i have such a great joke for you and then you don't hear the joke. You just see them laughing. I was like, is this the beginning of it? Am I meant to just make up a joke that I think you might have said? But this is me very much reaching, obviously. I'm just like mm -hmm. going out of my way to try to find the Lubitsch that I know. So maybe I'm, I'm grasping at straws and projecting. And then I had moments where I was just thinking about his camera is going to become so mobile, so fluid. And I feel like he's a bit encumbered uh, here. You know, a later Lubitsch would just have a a lot more camera movement, more cuts. And not and not that there that there aren't, you know, cut-ins or anything. It's not like it's in a tableau, but he's a he's a bit stuck in, in these wider shots. And I don't think he would be, you know, later on down the road. But and actually this goes against everything that I usually think of when I mm -hmm. when I want to um analyze movies from the past because I never want to think of it as, you know, these are primitive and they're trying to get to a certain point. Like never ever. Um, especially not with early movies. I always want to meet them where they are. 
but I couldn't help it with Lubitsch and being obsessed with the Lubitsch touch and just trying to find that Lubitsch I know. But he's definitely in there. I mean... In these early episodes, I'm finding it interesting kind of grappling with that. There's a lot of dimensions here, but just to reduce it to two, you got the dimension of the evolving toolkit in that like the idea of the, you know, kind of the Murnau's unchained camera, Mm -hmm. that all sort of thing. Right. And the ability to even do it weren't one conceived Mm -hmm. of. And two, not possible, really, with the technology available. And and Lubitsch would not have been on set going, oh, I wish we could move this camera, but we can't. I mean, he's thinking of, okay, we have this camera, we have this here, we have this toolkit. How can I make use of it? And, you know, I've tried to train myself over the years to uh, appreciate how filmmakers use the toolkits available to them, even just, and I don't mean just technologically available, but conceptually available Absolutely. to them versus asking them to use tools they don't. So I totally understand where you're coming from there. Yeah. But I couldn't help but just, you know, thinking about the Lubitsch who said there are a thousand ways to point a camera, but really only one. I'm like, you, he doesn't have the power yet to get to the one that he will know yeah. is the one later. But again, this is me. from. And, the, and he was still 23 too. That yeah, too. Was... 23 in short pants. <laughs> there was one quote I had of his that he just was that I I was born with an old face or something like Mm. that I'm like yeah (laughs) I I can see the gap between what Lubitsch wants to convey and what he is succeeding in conveying and and the the swapping of the labels is a good one too is a good example of that because I get the joke but I kind of needed to stop and think about it Mm. and not in like the Lubitsch touch way but in the it wasn't 100% clear what, what was happening way or it'll hold too long on a physical punchline long after I've got it, right? right? Things like that. And it is incredible to see just in two years, three years from this point, him just, it's so tight Mm -hmm. from that point on. And it never, he never loses that even when he's doing projects that he clearly isn't as interested in. He is. We were talking earlier about, um, you know, the typical Lubitsch protagonist who is kind of aspiring above his technical means, but has the sophistication to do it, uh, you know, would never be thought of as out of place in, you know, this upper crust of society, which they're pretending to belong. And I feel like this Lubitsch character is kind of halfway there. I mean, he's, he's got the aspiration, the wit to kind of trick his way into situations that he doesn't technically have, you know, the marks to Mm -hmm. be in, like, you know, when he's forging his letter of reference for his next job or when he's presenting himself in the, you know, very confident ways in which he presents himself. But I think the whole point is that his presentation is is not sophisticated. It's kind of the opposite mm-hmm. of that. It's, you know, it's kind of this yokel, I won't necessarily say outsider, but I, I think that is kind of an implication the whole idea of the Lubitsch protagonist as morally centered around the idea of sophistication. He's sophisticated in the sense that he's clever, Mm -hmm. knows how to improve his station with his intellect, but he isn't, he's abrasive Mm -hmm. about it. Right. And you see him picking up the tools The the dunking scene we talked about earlier, I feel like from that Mm -hmm. point on, you don't really get that jokey, you know, that this isn't someone we're going to laugh with about his failed antics anymore. This is someone who actually is now a bona fide success. And Mm -hmm. you can see he's just going to absorb all of this knowledge (laughs) straight to the top. It's almost like the prequel to the, um, the Lubitsch protagonist we're used to seeing. It's worth noting that Lubitsch always play. I mean, when he's acting, he plays it big. Mm-hmm. I've never seen him not play it big. Um, there's a there's an, a complete control to the way like Herbert Marshall or someone like I mean, even Carol mm-hmm. Lombard is con- in control of her persona in To Be or Not to Be in a way that uh, Lubitsch is in control of this character, but the character doesn't feel like he is like every single movement of his body is this choreographed performance. Right. Uh, the character, I mean, I, I, I can see the performance in Lubitsch, the actor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like his character is a bit chaotic on purpose. There's even a line where um, he's just created some drama and he says, this will be a fiasco. I can't wait. I mean, he is a, he is a chaos yeah. agent and you see that in his physicality <laughs> and in all of these, I don't want to say gags, but you know, these, these moments that he's setting up and, and of course, this leads us into a discussion of this physical characterization and also and also the non-physicality of it, you know, the kind of trickster aspect, the ambition that, you know, as you said, like using his smarts to kind of rise through the ranks. A lot of people have identified this as belonging to a kind of tradition of Jewish stock characters. 
And people have gone farther than that and and called it anti-Semitic, which I found very interesting. And and for me, watching the film, knowing that it, it is without that context, I don't know that I necessarily would have identified it on my own. But understanding the context, I can kind of see where the dialogue has emanated from. If Lubitsch is, as I understand him to be, tapping into this kind of uh, history of, you know, the Yiddish theater, he, he's pulling from this tradition of Jewish stock characters that, uh, that originate from Eastern European Jews. And he, he would have been exposed to this, you know, growing up in Berlin his family was among the, you know, the assimilated German Jews uh, of Berlin, although I know his father was actually a Russian Jew, uh, but his family is considered assimilated. But he has this exposure, you know, to, to, to the Jewish kind of cabaret. It's theater, but not, you know, not legitimate theater. It's kind of like theater on the outskirts. Um, I believe it was developing at the same time that the Yiddish theater was developing in America as well. Um, kind of concurrently, although I think with some similar tropes. Yeah. And so, and so Lubitsch kind of straddles these two cultures. You know, he is, he is this assimilated uh, Jewish German, even though he's only kind of once removed from, you know, the Eastern European Jews, because that is his father. It's interesting too, the divide between the de facto identity of the Lubitsches and citizenship, because they actually were technically Russian citizens, mm-hmm. because um, in World War I, uh, which is when this was made, Lubitsch was, uh, the reason why he wasn't conscripted was he was technically a foreign national. He was a Russian, because you carry the citizenship of your parents. That's so interesting. And of course, you mentioned that this movie is in the middle of the war. The war is already not going well. And mm-hmm. of course, we know that even though many Jewish Germans fought very proudly for Germany, like very proudly to be able to represent Germany in that war, they are still kind of made to be the scapegoat when Germany loses that war. And of course, no one will promote that idea more than Hitler and the Nazis. But so already the German Jews of Berlin are already very, and of Germany, are already very concerned. First of all, Jews always know that their position is precarious, even when, you know, they've been assimilated, even in in the case of, you know, German Jews, they've been given rights. But we always know our place is precarious. And nobody is more afraid of the effects of the Eastern European Jews coming into your space than a Jew who's already considered themselves assimilated. And in this case, that would be the German Jews. And that's actually true in the United States as well at the same time. And we can come back to that because I think that's interesting in how it relates to the film industry. So you have these these Eastern European Jews kind of on the outskirts of Berlin. Lubitsch is exposed to their theater. He knows of these, you know, this Jewish tradition of humor. He knows of this Jewish tradition of these stock characters. And I believe he is tapping into that. And so when you have people calling this characterization anti-Semitic. I think there could be a couple things going on here. Like I think it could be like little column A, little column B. I do think that when you have these kind of stock characters to represent an, an entire culture of people, I think it's always possible you have some internalized, in this case, anti-Semitism or internalized, you know, whatever that mode of discrimination or or, or hatred is. I, I think there's always some of those, you know, negative portrayals that can work their way into um, a performance like that, even when you are yourself of the community that you're kind of sending up in this way. But I think that takes away agency uh, from Lubitsch in this case. I, I think it's just as much probably about the fact that with him portraying this Eastern European Jewish tradition, you know, in a movie, which is suddenly going to have more legs than you know, than these local theaters ever had, you know, this is mass media, people will see this. I think you, you suddenly have these assimilated German Jews who are very nervous that this is the imagery that is going to be out there, um, whether they feel it doesn't represent them, whether they feel it will reflect badly on them, or even if it's the kind of thing of like, oh, we, we don't show this to the out, like, we don't do this for company, like, this is just something we do among us. Although for those assimilated German Jews, I don't think they would even think of them as this is us. Like 
this is them and this is us, even though we're all Jews. So I, I think that could be. And, and, and as we said, you know, they are already very nervous about what is happening in this war. They can probably feel, you know, that the tide of anti-Semitism is about to rise. And they see this as what we, what we Jews say, not good for the Jews, which I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Yeah, yeah. But I could picture them kind of thinking along those lines. Watching this portrayal, I don't see the things that I'm used to seeing when I think about, you know, coded anti-Semitism. You know, it's, it's always complex because he's, he's likable, he's sympathetic, but that in itself doesn't always mean that everything's kosher, you know. This, and I'm not saying this is what's happening in this movie, but, you know, someone could be portrayed as a likable fool in a way that would signal to the viewer that, you know, this person, this person and therefore this culture needs some sort of intervention. Like they cannot be counted on to, you know, to kind of take care of themselves. And that's that's what happens. That That's the whole point of, say, blackface minstrelsy. When you have white people creating these stock characters, I always ask who created these characters who created this characterization, I should say, and what is the purpose of that? Is it to demean, to dehumanize, to control? And when I watch this movie, I just don't see that being a concern for me. A, like he is the main character. That's not usually the case. There's either another character that you're filtered through or, mm-hmm. you know, you're the villain or you're a Shylock or you're a Fagin. He's not a fool and he's not treacherous. Something, and maybe this is a low bar, but you know, when that woman offers to suddenly give him all that money, he doesn't, he doesn't trick her out of that money. He doesn't even get it purposefully. It's not even in his mind to go there, to go after her money. She just offers it. Where I come from, (laughs) Texas, growing up, people would use Jew as a verb to mean, you know, tricked out of money or, you know, like gouged. He is not doing that to get all this money. And again, I know, low bar. I'm looking for what I usually look for when I see something anti-Semitic. He's also not the only person in the movie coded as Jewish. And there are a lot of, you know, varying portrayals among the characters of this movie. And so I have to say it, it didn't really set off the alarms for me. I will share another story from Texas. I met a lot of people who told me I was the first Jew they ever met. The most memorable of these is this girl, probably 15-year-old girl, who was like, oh my God, I'm so excited. I've always wanted to meet a Jew and I've never met a Jew. And then she starts putting her fingers into my hairline on my forehead and feeling around. And she says, where are they? Are, Are they like in your hair? And I was like, excuse me? She was looking for horns. Oh my God. This... Like 15, 16 year old girl, legit. Actually, I think she might have been older than that. And she legitimately, completely earnestly, not even in a mean way, just thought I had horns because that's what she'd been mm. told about Jews. And she'd never met one before. And that is a completely legitimate story. Like she actually thought that. I've never gotten over that. Someone actually thought I would have horns. But that's, you know, that is the classic portrayal that I'm used to seeing you know, in, in old political cartoons. And so maybe I just have too low a bar when I'm approaching this movie and looking for something that I would identify as being anti-Semitic in a way that would make me uncomfortable. I think it's also worth looking at the character, uh, not from the top-down perspective of the identity of Ernst Lubitsch and therefore the character, but from Ernst Lubitsch's own personal experience. Because part of what I find oddly touching about Sally Pincus as a character is that Ernst Lubitsch, so a little bit of backstory about him. Um, his father worked in garments, especially women's garments, actually. And his father was also much more of a ladies' man than Ernst mm-hmm. Lubitsch ever was. Later on in his life, he would basically uh, have a habit of uh, sleeping with his uh, uh, his maids. I'd say troubled figure, in, uh, but yet someone who... I think undeniably inspired numerous characters in Ernst Lubitsch's films, or at least informed them 
In this case, um, it feels like Sally Pink is, is both a portrayal of Ernst Lubitsch, who is this incredibly ambitious uh, young man who just desperately does does not want to accept the station in life that his you know his family has given him and wants to improve it. That to me feels like Ernst because I mean one of the central conflicts at this point of his life was that he didn't want to work in his dad's business, and yet he's also playing his dad because in the end he's playing a women's garment purveyor uh who is quite leisurous just like his father in a way that ernst at least as far as we know never really was uh, he had other romantic problems but they usually involved um his various partners cheating on him <laughs> so he was a workaholic that was his problem uh, as far as we know so so to me there's mm-hmm. something weirdly touching about playing an amalgam of himself and his father so that's that was kind of my entrance into trying to find the character mm-hmm. there I am now rethinking the moment when, you know, he kind of hits on the maid and the father's like, no, no. And then as soon as he walks away, the father hits on the maid, which I, I never, you know, obviously I never like to see that kind of lechery and sexual harassment in movies. But I also understand as a movie watcher who wants to understand it on the filmmaker's terms, I use context clues to figure out how they think I'm supposed to interpret this. Like, you know what I mean? Because like in old movies like this, there's stuff we're supposed to identify as lecherous and stuff we're not. But it all seems a little bit lecherous because it, you know, it's... especially I mean, especially because I mean, uh, Lubitsch, even though he likely is a similar age, actually, to the to the people opposite mm-hmm. him, he, he, photogra- he photographs as like a dirty old man, kind of. <laughs> and there's a lot of tongue. Yes. There's a lot of tongue in his uh, physical performance. <clears throat> But, uh, you know, if you if you look at the context clues we're supposed to look at, a lot of the women, not all, but a lot of the women and girls, I should say, too, that he interacts with in this movie um, seem to really like him, cheer him on. You know, there's the girls during gym class and then, of course, all the girls that he buys ice cream for. If anything, I think we're supposed to even understand that the girls pull one over him, uh, pull one over on him more than he does mm-hmm. to them there's you know he buys one girl ice cream he has to buy all of them ice cream and then he has to carry all of their you know all of their books and then he walks that one woman you know he's walking her to what i think he thinks is a date turns out he's walking her to her boyfriend and then all of the women who are kind of making fun of him in the the locker room of his work like if it were today we'd have an incel on our hands i but i think we're supposed to understand that like a lot of the girls enjoy interacting with him and yeah, like I said, pulling one over on him. And so I think we're supposed to understand that, you know, he we're not supposed to villainize him for his apparent lechery. But I am just saying for the record, I was not comfortable with any of the lechery in the movie. <laughs> um, but I'm just trying to understand it on its terms and what we're supposed to understand about the character's morality. It's interesting too the the, the kind of journey. The I mean, I think Lubitsch has a history of writing and directing lecherous characters. And and it's interesting to see them evolve because uh, something like Lieutenant the Wildcat is lecherous, but he's also a buffoon who essentially only has a reputation of being lecherous. It seems mostly because he's really hot and all the girls just like make love with him. Um, he's just like a, almost like a passive person. And then you get to like the Maurice Chevalier years where you have this interesting arc where from the love parade, which I think it's, it's, I have not seen every Lubitsch movie, but it's the most chauvinistic mm-hmm. I have seen. That's his first musical with him. And by the time you get five years later to the Merry widow, that whole film is about how the Maurice Chevalier character, who is like the quintessential Lubitsch rake, it's about him reforming his ways and essentially embracing conservative monogamy. This kind of plays all into a big arc at least as far as I can tell, um, of Lubitsch's career and how he basically deals with the rake. Interesting. It's also interesting, you know, that his big reform would be towards monogamy when I feel like so many of Lubitsch's movies, I mean, he shows this very sexually liberated woman, or at least as sexually liberated as you get for this time, although it is pre-code. So, you know, you see a lot of examples of non-monogamy and he very carefully employs those margins of safety to make sure you're always okay with it and having fun. There's a lot of love triangles. You know, normally when when filmmakers are are playing a love triangle for you and they're like kind of playing it straight and conservative, it's very clear to you you're rooting for. It. You know, like take like a His Girl Friday. You understand Ralph Bellamy is not getting the girl. You understand Cary Grant is getting mm-hmm. the girl. But in in many of Lubitsch's love triangle movies, 
Um, he really just wants you to be comfy with all three <laughs> sides of the love triangle, just kind mm -hmm. of being all in it together. And that takes a very sophisticated touch to make a viewer just totally comfortable and, and, you know, enjoying that. So I do think it's funny that then he takes a character like Chevalier and has to have like the reverse, uh, arc i guess you could say i always and part of what i'm excited about in doing this whole podcast is is getting a finer kind of look at this but the question of lubitsch's authorship and what he actually believes is so elusive it's like john ford level elusive um <laughs> in terms of the politics of it where i mean it, you go from like the love parade which is as clear an affirmation of traditional gender roles as one can get uh, to like design for living and trouble in paradise, which are probably the two most famous examples in Hollywood, or at least the pre-code era of undercutting that. And then straight into Mary widow, which uh, undercuts both of those things with a third traditional way, basically that mm. um, it doesn't so much reinforce gender power dynamics as it reinforces, Hey, it's okay to basically, I mean, that film is so not about what it's about. It's about having fun, but, um, that film, you know, it, it kind of weirdly travels the line between endorsing like the rakish lifestyle and also just like find someone and be happy with them and only them. <laughs> so I, 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 it's hard to it's hard to know where he comes down on these things and how much of it is just how much he just loves telling like the stories he likes telling. It's interesting. I've I've never found myself thinking too much about what do I think Lubitsch actually believe, you know, what is Lubitsch's actual morality? Cause I think I'm just mm. so like along for the yeah. ride. He has a moment in design for a living that is so meta when it's discovered that, uh, okay. Gary, yeah. It's when Gary Cooper comes home and Frederick March has also come home and now, um, you know, she might mm -hmm. be going with him again and it's, you know, it's a betrayal and he's like, oh, we, you know, we have three options. It could be burlesque smash everything in the house it could be high class art and we'll just all have a great time and gary cooper's <laughs> like or i could you know punch you in the nose this is paraphrasing this is paraphrasing and he says oh dull melodrama yeah. so i like i'm just i'm just yeah lubich it, he just wants to make high class art fizzy like champagne and we'll just all have a great time and also mm -hmm. maybe my mind is too engaged you know like always keeping up with whatever jokes I'm supposed to be supplying in my head, I guess I just never got too much farther than that to worry about the underlying morality. I'm just like, oh, okay, you made everything perfectly easy for me to just be along for the ride for something that in another movie could be very painful or very dramatic or very what have you. I don't know. So I, I'm just finding it so interesting that you're like, I, what's what's Lubitsch's morality here? Like, what's what does this say about his real life? It, it's interesting because, I mean, we can also contextualize that in like the Hollywood system, right? Or even like the the Pagu or Ufa systems in Berlin, right? Where it, it's not like, you know, the modern idea of the auteur where it's like, hey, I'm Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm going to make this one film that I wrote and it's mine. It's no, it's you're part of a system. And sometimes you're just given a project. Like, I, I think it was, oh, which was the Mary Pickford film? He He had no interest in. Well, and even though Mary Pickford was the one who originally brought him to Hollywood, that is such a mismatch. I mean, you know, she's like this spunky tomboy character. The Lubitsch leading ladies are these very sophisticated, you know, the opposite of Mary Pickford. And they're both great. I want both. I want both the Lubitsch leading ladies and Mary Pickford, but they're not the same thing. So those, that, that's just a mismatch of style there. It's interesting seeing that occasionally. I mean, this is uh, this is one. Of, this is a good tangent because um, I uh, I relatively recently watched Monte Carlo, and it's uh, Jack Buchanan in a role clearly designed for Maurice, um, mm. and it's just a weird. I love Jack Buchanan quite a bit, but it's such an odd mismatch of style because um, he doesn't seem like he's in on the joke enough, and he can make it work. You know, I feel like under normal circumstances, a Gary Cooper would not fit into a, a Lubitsch universe. I feel like Frederick mm. Mark, March would, but, but, but he, he plays him perfect. I mean, he, and by he, I mean Lubitsch, you know, he, he fits him perfectly into that universe. As I said before, I absolutely adore that movie, but you know what I, I said, we were going to come back to when you mentioned the, the Shylock uh, monologue mm -hmm. being used in to be or not to be, because I was suddenly of course thinking about how does Lubitsch usually treat Jewish representation and my mind immediately went to Greenberg. And I mean, he is, I almost don't even want to say coded as Jewish because I feel like it's its more than coded. I feel like he's mm -hmm. absolutely, his name is Greenberg. One of his first lines, he tells an older actor, what you are, I wouldn't eat. 
And he says, like, how dare mm-hmm. you call me a ham? So it's like, you get that he's kosher. That's just short of explicit. Right. Yeah. He mentioned several times that he wishes he could play Shylock. And, and did you know the story about Lubitsch's first audition? Oh, please tell me. Uh, Ernst Lubitsch's first audition for Victor Arnold. What did he do? Uh, he played Shylock. He did mm. Shylock's famous monologue. And uh, according to Lou Vitch said Shylock as he had never been play- played before and hopefully never again. Wow. <laughs> so that clearly is a, of immense personal relevance to him. Yeah. I feel like Felix Prestart actually in general, who plays Greenberg in To Be or Not mm-hmm. To Be, is almost a Lou Vitch stand-in in every single film he's in. He really feels like that in Chop Around the Corner. It, it is so touching. I mean, you know, if you prick us, do we not bleed? I like I trust Lubitsch. I I trust his representation of Jewish characters. And of course, you know, in in both of these examples, it it's never explicitly said that any of these characters are Jewish. And I don't I don't know as much about you know the context of filmmaking in Berlin, but I do know that at that time, you know, in, in the United States, even though almost all of the studio heads and producers and many many of the writers you know, even though they're predominantly Jewish, they had to be very, very careful to never be seen as having a Jewish agenda, mm-hmm. especially leading up to the war. There was such thing as announcing yourself as anti-fascist too soon <laughs> before yeah. it was fashionable. And of course, we know that a lot of those people who did come out as anti-fascist, quote unquote, too soon, were then later, you know, targeted, um, you know, in the communist witch hunt. It's having to Chaplin, right? Mm. And so I can't tell if that is Lubitsch or if that's just that couldn't be seen as being Jews against Nazis. It had to be seen as America against Nazis in general, but also because the, the way that those, you know, Jewish founders of Hollywood were even allowed to become at the head of this industry is because when they entered it, there wasn't a real industry. It hadn't yet been proven as, you know, this system that it would become. Jews were not allowed into any industry that was thought of as high class. But since, again, this isn't, you know, a solidified industry yet, and because from its inception, movies were always thought of as, you know, entertainment for the masses, D class A, you know, it, it was okay for Jews to kind of enter into that sphere. But as soon as it's proven that actually this is not only um, a lucrative industry, but also an influential one, because suddenly, you know, they're affecting the content that is, you know, projected out to movie screens across the country. Suddenly, there are a lot of people who are very concerned that there are Jews at the top of this industry. You know, you have censorship attempts right away from the Catholic Legion of Decency. And I see that as a through line going all the way up to HUAC. And so th- I, when I look at something like To Be or Not To Be, which is almost as ballsy as it gets, I don't know if you've seen Andre de Toth's None Shall Escape. I think that's the only movie made during World War II that actually explicitly says that Jews were being targeted by the Mm. Nazis. At at the moment of To Be or Not To Be, you would not have people explicitly talking about Jews. So I can't Mm. tell if that's Lubitsch or if that's where the industry was at that moment. But I do know that it feels like a very respectful portrayal and perhaps as explicit as he could have gotten in that moment and still have been helpful to the cause. It is, it's a movie that it was released before the kind of height of the Holocaust in, in Poland, at least. And yet it is so preoccupied with that, with the specific targeting of Jewish people in Europe. It just doesn't say that word. It doesn't use that phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was the norm. Even, you know, they're talking about concentration camps. Yeah. So they call me. (laughs) Sorry, I never you would never think you'd be laughing at a sentence that has the word concentration Mm. camp in it. But that is just some of the funniest. Oh, and can we also talk about, I mean, just the humor of how many times you can fit the phrase Heil Hitler into one scene. Clearly, Jojo Rabbit is, you know, deeply indebted Mm -hmm. to to, to be or not to be. It's interesting that uh, our we're uh, we're making the same connections between this film and to be or not to be because they're both, mm-hmm. I think, about as as tied up in that question of Ernst Lubitsch's identity as uh, as a Jew and especially as a kind of uh, international immigrant, right? He ha- having moved right. multiple times. At least uh, his parents, you know, moved right before he was born, and then he moved to the U.S. and really, you know, fully bought into that uh, that culture <laughs> to a wonderful degree. 
agree. Actually, have, have you seen, um, you've seen Clooney Brown? No, I haven't. That's a film that I would really be interested in your reaction to uh, because it ends with not a twist, but with a development that situates it as this achingly autobiographical, but incredibly hopeful film for him because it's specifically, it's I think it's his only film that involves someone emigrating to the U.S. from you. Interesting. And it ends with almost like, again, it, it's it's a, the character's an author, not a filmmaker, but it almost feels like a statement of Lubitsch going, yeah, 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 that's me, I did it. Mm. <laughs> I would definitely watch that. And sorry, mm. I remembered why I started talking about concentration mm. camps. Even in movies where you do talk about concentration camps, I mean, even Casablanca talks about concentration camps, but you will never hear the word mm. Jew except for, I believe, None Shall Escape by Andre Tov. You know, they're literally talking about concentration camps and not who's being sent there. Um, but that was the norm. So I, I don't think that was Lubitsch. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I think that even if he had tried, he might have been censored because, of course, they were so careful about that. Exactly. And then another example is uh, from The Mortal Storm, uh, mm-hmm. the Borsagi yeah. film, where the um, bigotry of the Nazis is not actually... In that film, in the world that film creates, it is not uh, primarily around uh, ethnic and racial hatred. It is around ideological hatred. It's about the Nazis hate our ideas and they do not allow for diversity of ideas. The question of ethnic um, hatred and bigotry is not even broached. I found that's one of the most interesting things about that film is that it, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's inarguable that, uh, ethnic and xenophobia were, were a central tenets of that ideology. And, and it's, it's an interesting misrepresentation that almost certainly I think was a result of that same censorship then. Yeah. They were walking a very fine line mm-hmm. and some of the studios were m- more eager to talk about earlier, you know, like Warner brothers, I think they, they, they want to broach that subject earlier than the other studios, but yeah, we're always walking a very fine line. Um, by the way, just total side note, but because you mentioned Borzaghi, he is another director that I absolutely adore. And I don't know why, but so one of my favorites of his is history is made at night. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, but that almost feels like a Lubitsch film to me. Um, I like it. Obviously it's very, very much a Borzaghi film, but there's just something about it. Maybe it's like, have you seen it? I have not seen it yet. I cannot recommend it more highly. It's I I love it, and and there's just some I I here you you watch it, and then you tell me why it reminds me of Lubitsch. <laughs> All right, well, it's there's a whole. I mean, I'm, we're going to do a whole episode later on too about uh, it's going to be about desire, but it's really going to be hopefully to me um, about uh, <laughs> like all the side the, the Lubitsch adjacent films that are all, mm. that were almost his, like um, Love Me Tonight, that sort of thing, mm. right? Films that are almost Lubitsch in all but name. Yeah, that's really interesting. It is tough to even um, express how big of a deal he was when he was a big deal, right? I mean, he was mm-hmm. s- such a big deal that I mean, one of the one of the running jokes in Sullivan's Travels was uh, that uh, Veronica Lake, or the character she's playing, the girl I think is just her name, wants to meet Lubitsch and to be in his <laughs> next film, right? That's that's yeah. the, that's that's her whole motivation in, in the film, yeah. and and they don't have to explain. Oh, you mean Lubitsch, Ernst Lubitsch, the famous director? No, it's just I'm I, I want to meet Lubitsch. Of course. Well, and Lubitsch is one of the few people that, you know, that Hitchcock will cite as an influence. Mm-hmm. He hates citing people's influences, but gosh, that's another one I love so much. Uh, well, I love anything Preston Sturges, but even when Lubitsch is at Warner Brothers, which is again, kind of a mismatch of style, you know, his whole thing is like sophistication, European. Um, although as you say, he has to be in America making films about Europe because if he's in Europe making films about Europe, that's not a faraway land. Like the mm-hmm. whole point is that it's a faraway land. And in fact, that is one of his margins of safety is that it's this whole other world. But this is not a fit for Warner Brothers, whose whole thing is, you know, very scrappy and hard boiled. But even even as, you know, Jack and Harry Warner were aware that they did not really gel with Lubitsch, they were very aware of how successful he was. They knew that he was doing good business for them even as they did not appreciate really the style um, in which he went about doing it, just because that wasn't their wheelhouse. There wasn't, that wasn't their shit. And I do not say that uh, in a demeaning way because I, I, I love Warner brothers movies. 
and I love Lubitsch movies, but they're not really the same thing at that time period. No, and and it's interesting what you say about how Lubitsch could only have made, you know, his his European movies in America, really, at least the, his great ones, because that that was something that struck me about his um, Berlin work. I'm just, I was thinking while watching, I think, I don't want to be a man. How often is it that Lubitsch makes a film where it's set? And it's not very often. Mm-hmm. And almost mm-hmm. all of those are in his Berlin years. I think I can only recall one or two. There might be more, but a couple only come to mind of his American films that are actually set in America, right? There's Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, which I believe is set in America. Is Heaven Can Wait in America? I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's set in mm. death. But it's... <laughs> the, the farthest away land of them all. And and also, like, there's there's always that moment, especially towards the beginning of a movie, where somebody is talking in a language that he knows most of the American viewers will not understand, and he mm-hmm. does not translate it. Because, A, it, it's part of setting you in this world where you're like, okay, this is a different world than the one I live in. This is a movie world. Uh, I'm safe here. But also, it right away, it, it instills that visual humor. Um, you're right away being told to kind of think about things on another level, um, you know, to interpret what you're seeing visually. And, and right away have to figure out, you know, those visual punchlines for yourself. So I don't, I don't know how much you want to talk about the kind of conflict between um, the assimilated German Jews and the the newly emigrated Eastern European Jews, you know, who are escaping pogroms mm. and are, you know, more conservative in their culture because they're not assimilated. And there's this culture clash between the two. The exact same thing is happening in America at that time, also with kind of German Jews set against, you know, these newly arriving Eastern European Jews. Mm. So much so, and I think this anecdote really says it all, when Jack Warner married a German Jew from a, a prominent San Francisco Jewish family and brought her back to meet the rest of his family, she thought they were incredibly low class in every possible way. And they did not like her either. In fact, um, they called her a shiksa, which is a not too loving way to refer to a Gentile woman. Mm. So they consider her to be so far apart from their own culture, they refer to her as not even Jewish. I don't know if you've read An Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood by Neil Gabler. Um, I realize not not directly uh, relevant to Lubitsch, although he is mentioned in it, but Gabler is describing, you know, how the German Jews had worked so hard to, you know, assimilate into American culture. And he's, he's talking specifically about Los Angeles, I believe in 1915. So pretty much the same time that this movie is made. And there is a quote from the B'nai B'rith messenger, which would have been kind of like the newsletter of this synagogue, uh, B'nai B'rith. A German Jew has written, just the other day, we noticed several Russian Jewish immigrants walking the streets, wearing their beaver head coverings. It was quite a novelty here in this city and their friends should remind these fellows that they are in Los Angeles and not in Siberia. You know, these, mm. these, whether it's the German Jews in Berlin or the German Jews in America, they know that as soon as, you know, these, at the time, what would have considered, you know, the white people are like the, the higher class people who have allowed these German Jews to become assimilated these German Jews are now worried that if they're um, associated with this newly emigrated set of Eastern European Jews who are so obviously not assimilated, that it will almost like remind, you know, the hegemony that they are also Jewish. They, they fear nothing more than being associated with the Eastern European Jews. I just think it's funny, not funny that they ever thought that they were thought of as anything other than Jews, because it's so clear to me that like, even the assimilated Jews, like they never stop thinking of us as Jews. It's, it's, you know, you're fooling yourself to think as long as I've assimilated and they don't, you know, put me in the same category as those Eastern European Jews, you know, they'll just think of me as one of them. You know, they were never going to be thought of as Mm -hmm. one of them, but in their minds, they had a chance and these newly immigrated Jews were ruining it for them. And I think that's what we're seeing in the feedback to, uh, to shoe palace pinkus. I think it's also worth noting that that the the Nazi Party's um, 
version of Ufa, which is a kind of a, a horrific, twisted bastardization of the Ufa that existed in the <laughs> 20s, used footage of Lubitsch as essentially ammunition against him. So there is that kind of added retrospective, uh, kind of a, almost a discomfort with it right. um, because of the way that it was, again, I think, horrifically and unfairly weaponized. Was that in uh, The Eternal Jew, the 1940 propaganda film, Nazi propaganda film? I forget if that's a specific one where they use footage. Um, I must admit not having not watched that film fully. I I, I, I wish I could unwatch it. I, I was watching it because I wanted to see the Peter Lorre segment. You know, they use they use imagery of Peter Lorre in Fritz Lang's M playing a compulsive child killer. It's the climactic scene in which he's talking about how he can't help himself. He has to murder. And of course, he plays it brilliantly. He's Peter Lorre. And that is the clip that's used in this Nazi propaganda film. But yeah, I just feel like that's weaponizing something that... I don't know. Was never. Yeah. Sorry. I, I want to abandon that thought because I don't even know where I was going. I think I get what you're getting at. It's kind of it's almost weaponizing an in joke meant for private purposes. Right. And that's kind of what I was getting at before when I'm saying like if you're taking this thing that's from the local, I keep calling it the Yiddish theater because you know that's what it would have been referred to um, as in America. Mm-hmm. But you're taking almost this in joke that's like, to my understanding, created by Jews for Jews, and suddenly you're showing it to the world. And it takes on different meaning. It's very easy for someone literally 100 years in the future, like us, mm-hmm. to um, watch a film like Shoe Palace Make Us and to go, okay, this feels problematic. So therefore, uh, we're just going to put it in that bin. And I think and there's, there's so much... Uh, virulent racism and bigotry in stuff at, at all times, but I think I think we can all you know uh, agree that the early 20th century was not a great time for that in the in various places. And part of what I find interesting about this specific film is that it forces us to reckon with the nuances of that. And who, like you know, just the questions we've been asking: Who is this for? You know, like an example of the vaudeville. Um, you know, the the blackface mm-hmm. minstrelsy was for the enjoyment of white audiences and curated by white people. It is not a like in joke for a certain culture. It is an attack on a certain group of people from another group of people. In that case, the group of people who have the right. vast majority of the power versus Shoe Palace Pincus, which nuance there, you know, again, it's a Jewish German uh, Ernst Lubitsch making a a work that is inspired by uh, the culture it is uh, maybe depicting, satirizing, and uh, I, I would hope not done with malice. And at the end of the day, we're rooting for him. He's successful. Um, his wit uh, carries him through. Also, a lot of cultures have kind of a, a beloved trickster character. Like the idea of a trickster doesn't bother me. I, you know, a lot of people will add ambition to this list of kind of negative Jewish stereotypes. I've never seen anything wrong with having ambition, especially for a group of people who are like shoved down to the bottom of society. What do you, what do you expect them to want to do, but to climb their way out of, you know, where you force them to be. Without ambition, we wouldn't have Ernst Lubitsch. Exactly. Exactly. And also I like there, you could find a lot of examples, you know, of prominent, Jewish actors who are described as, you know, being like exaggerated in their mannerisms. Zero Mostel is an example of that. Um, but, but, you know, there's tons of examples of that. And I have to say that as I was watching this movie, I noticed that he shares a lot of um, mannerisms in common with my grandfather. <laughs> uh, like I, I could recognize a familiarity in him almost, uh, even in the exaggeration. Um, and it's like he said when he was defending himself, like there's always a place for Jewish humor. Clearly, this is a very beloved mode of performance for him. This might be a good time. Maybe we could uh, we could give Ernst the last word. And here's what he said when asked about his opinion of Jewish, in quotes, milieu comedies in the journal Der Kinematograph. Lubitsch said, It is often said that films with a Jewish milieu are offensive. That's a completely implausible standpoint. Should it be the case that such a film arouses disapproval? then it is only and solely due to the performance, which either doesn't suit the essence of Jewish humor, in which case the actor should stay away from such roles, or is it due to excessive exaggeration, which would harm any type of artistic performance and destroy its effect. Wherever Jewish humor appears, it is compassionate and artistic and plays such a great role in other art forms that it would be ridiculous to try and do without it in the cinema.
I mean, one thing that sticks out for me there is that uh, Lubitsch kind of basically says, well, if it didn't work, it's my fault as the actor. Mm -hmm. Almost that kind of echoes what he said about his Shylock role. Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, he's aware that he's entering into this kind of beloved tradition. And if he's not doing it justice, that must be what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's nothing inherently wrong in what he's trying to do from, you know, this being his, his standpoint on it. Well, I think that that's as probably as good a place as any to uh, to wrap up the episode. Is there anything you'd like, anything uh, of yours that is particularly online that you'd like to direct listeners to? As a hobby, in my very little free time, I do a liquid light show, <laughs> which is uh, live analog visuals that accompany music performances. Like I do a lot of gigs. <laughs> my My show name is liquid courage light show so you can find me on instagram under liquid courage light show it's like 60s um you know 60s concert visuals basically that's kind of all i have to uh to promote (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for coming this has been great of course this is such a pleasure thank you so much for having me next week matt severson joins us to discuss the merry jail Head over to www.ernstcast.com for the links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 